of the Loins of History, a podcast connecting the past to the present and correcting historical and political illiteracy. I'm Colin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jay. Jay's going to be continuing the series on the Han Dynasty, or excuse me, the fall of the Han Dynasty, and today we're going to talk about the Yellow Turban Rebellion. So Jay, I'll hand it off to you for a quick summary and some key takeaways. Thanks, Colin. Yeah, like like you said, today's episode is going to be on the Yellow Turban Rebellion, which was a major uh, peasant uprising that was religious in nature in the year 184, and it kind of bled into 185 a little bit. And the, we're going to look and see the role that the Yellow Turban Rebellion played in the downfall of the first major Chinese dynasty uh, right after the Qin dynasty. Uh, so the second major <laughs> dynasty, but the first, the first big one um, that was kind of like a cultural golden age uh, for China. And we were... Colin and I were kind of talking before we started recording here about how this rebellion kind of parallels some rebellions within the Qing dynasty. And if you really like Chinese history, uh, we we finished up a 20-plus episode on U.S. and Chinese relations, and we talked at length about Qing dynasty in the 18 and 1900s. Uh, Qing dynasty, I think, was founded in the 16 or 1700s. I think it's 1700s. Uh, this rebellion kind of models or is similar to a lot of those rebellions in that the Yellow Turban Rebellion did not kill the Han Dynasty. The Han Dynasty survived. Uh, the Han Dynasty, the last emperor, was deposed in the year 220 AD, whereas this rebellion, like I said, it was in 184 and 185. So there was still, you know, 25 years of continued Han rule, but kind of similar to the Qing dynasty, this rebellion really was kind of a high watermark with some issues within the government. And it should have been a wake-up call to the Han, to the administration there in, in uh, Luoyang, uh, but... It was not heated. Uh, the The Han was able to put down the rebellion. The imperial armies were successful, but uh, you know the issues continued. So we're going to look and see like what issues led to this rebellion. How did the rebellion take place? What did the Han do to put it down? And then why that's significant for today. All right, so just kind of telling the story about what happened. So in 184, a dude named Zhang Jue, uh, the Zhang family uh, had three brothers. Zhang, Zhang Jue was the, the ringleader. He had, he had two brothers uh, who, between was- the three of them, he was pretty charismatic, wasn't he? He was kind of like the uh, the ringleader, if you will. That yeah. he was very charismatic and uh, kind of like the the heavyweight of the three, if you will. Yes. Yeah. So he was he was the leader. He was the main guy. Uh, but we'll see here. His other two brothers played a very important role. Uh, between the three of them, they founded a 
a popular cult or a sect of t- under Taoism uh, known as the Yellow Turbans. So not, not going to go too in-depth on Taoism, uh, but it was considered a alternative and competitive school of thought to Confucianism. So the Taoism was uh, antagonistic to Confucianism. Uh, the Han was a Confucian court. Buddhism had not yet gained any significant ground uh, within China at this time. Uh, although I think Taoism and Buddhism are related, but Taoism was seen as speaking against Confucianism and it kind of was this mystical alternative. So the Zhang brothers, uh, formed this Taoist sect and they called themselves the yellow turbans and this yellow, the yellow turban kind of came from, uh, the view, you know, it was popular for dynasties to pick a color. The Han dynasty's color was, was red, like a, like a certain shade of red. And so these guys said, Hey, we're going to institute a new era here in China. Uh, and our color is going to be yellow. Uh, so all of their followers would wear these yellow headscarves. Um, some of the characteristics of what this what this cult uh, or this sect would do was they they were really big on performing these like miraculous healings, which is interesting because you know even here today in the United States there's some strange religious. Uh, you know, I think of Benny Hinn, like waving his suit jacket around, uh, like back in the day. And, you know, the, the people that are like spazzing out on stage, like it's, it's the 184 Chinese equivalent to that kind of stuff. Uh, and through the healing, you know, if you remember in our last episode, uh, there were several plagues related to the Antonine plague, you know, disease going back and forth across the Silk Road. A lot of these peasants would, um, get sick, their family would die, uh, and they were really looking to anything because the Han and the local administrators were not really helping out at all. So this faith healing was was a huge part of their their sect. Did they see? Did the average Chinese farmer, peasant, whatever, look to see this faith healing as kind of a new mandate? Like we've talked about that mandate of heaven being shifted uh-huh. around. And did yeah. they see this as like, oh, perhaps, perhaps the current Han dynasty has lost it. And now they're able to heal the exact problem that has come up. Perhaps no. the mandate has shifted. Yeah, dude, you nailed it. It's a, you know, we talked about in our last episode, the Yellow River had just had a major flood. Uh, tons of people were displaced. There's all these diseases. Uh, you know, in the more like fictional, not entirely sure if this happened, but there were like eclipse, you know, solar eclipses with earthquakes. And then you have these guys, the, these Zhang brothers who can, um, you know, do these miraculous healings. And it's like, yes, we have the authority. We now have the mandate. You should follow us and we're going to institute a new reign here, here in China. So you're exactly right. Um, one of the, one of the things that, uh, Zhang Jue did was, um, he was kind of a mastermind plotter. So he was, he was not just like this 
uh, Martin Luther King Jr. figure where he was like, oh, I'm here to preach change, but he was I have more no like intention of Jones. running the show. He was more like a David, David Jones. Jones. <laughs> cult leader. Typically, oh, cult yeah. <laughs> le- typically cult leaders tend to uh, tend to be very good schemers. Right. Well, and he began plotting to overthrow the Han. And it was, you know, again, in our in our series on the Qing dynasty, there were like these secret societies, you know, the, the Boxer Rebellion was the like, was it the League of Harmonious Fists or something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they formed these secret societies like that was very much a thing even back during the Han. And the Yellow Turbans kind of took on that character. And like there were literally hundreds of thousands of them in these different areas throughout, uh, throughout northern China. And Zhang Jue had picked out these like thirty, what he called generals, all over northern China, and they were just kind of waiting for his word to rebel. They were going to overthrow the Han. By the way, Jay, it's actually Jim Jones, not David Jones. Oh, Jim I Jones. I was, I think I was getting two different cult leaders. Two you were you were thinking crossed. of the pirate, Davy Jones. David. Jim Jones <laughs> drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, they all are. Oh, that's who Jim Jones is. Is the Kool-Aid guy. He's the Kool-Aid guy. I don't think he actually uh, drank it though. I have to get I, I I don't know enough of that history right now for the podcast, but I do know he was the one that drank the Kool-Aid. Interesting. Yeah, the cults will rear their heads from time to time. Well, it's just kind of interesting. We the the kind of care we talked about his personality and him being very charismatic and something with like faith healing, you can see why it would resonate with people, especially if you start with, since there's such an ingrained belief in the mandate of heaven and looking at Mm -hmm. all of these great signs, it's very easy for somebody who has both a scheming personality and a charismatic personality to take advantage of that and utilize it for power. Right. I don't think it's going to be the last time we see it in this fall of empires series, but interesting. No, it's definitely it's a not. common historical oh. thread. Yeah, so um, this this might sound familiar to you, Colin, but the the book, uh, one of the books that Zhang Jue, you know, quote unquote, preached from, was called uh, "Crucial Keys to the Way of Peace," which in Mandarin is pronounced "Taiping Yao Shu." Uh, and it was also known as, or it was based on another book called the Taiping Jing. Does that sound familiar at all? To other than the Taiping Rebellion, but that was totally different. That's no, it. it. No, yeah, that's Taiping. it. Yeah. Wait, what's going on with the Tai Taiping? It's a hot button for rebellion. Hot not, place for rebellion. That's right. So it would not be the last time that a Taiping Rebellion uh, were to take place. Uh, for those of y'all that hadn't listened, there was a massive, probably one of the lar- largest uh, civil conflicts. Um, 14 years and 20 million dead. Massive. That's right. All of the, uh, you know, in United States history, on the West Coast, there were tons of Chinese immigrants. And we never got taught, we being Americans, uh, never got taught that the whole reason why all those Chinese immigrants were coming over was this thing called the Taiping Rebellion and the famine and the bloodshed and a lot of people died in China. So, uh, you know, this is the Han Dynasty version of of the Taiping Rebellion. Um, so another thing that Zhang Jue did was he came up with a 16-word or like a 16-character in Chinese um, 
poem slash slogan. And it was four sets of four characters. So it was like super poetic and catchy. Uh, translated into English, uh, the the slogan is, the azure sky is already dead, referring to the Han. The yellow sky will soon rise. When the year is jiazi, there will be prosperity under heaven. So that, I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but I believe it's pronounced jiazi. Uh, uh, that year is kind of, you know, related to this Taoist calendar um, that was like, mm, you know, like mystical in nature, like certain predictive apocalyptic things were going to occur at certain times. So he was kind of appealing to this like religious uh, belief that in the end, there's going to be this big calamity, but on the other end of the of the chaos will come a better society. So uh, this slogan really mobilized the masses, and there were millions, millions of Chinese peasants joined the yellow turbans, uh, and they were waiting for his call. Well, something happened in 184. Uh, Zhang Jue had been coordinating with a eunuch inside the imperial court. And real quick, um, not not going into too much detail because we're going to talk more about the eunuchs in our next episode. But essentially, the way uh, the Han did administration was they would take men who, for whatever reason, probably uh, they well, not probably, but these men throughout China would commit crimes for which the punishment would be castration. So these crimes were probably sexual in nature and these men would be castrated and then they would be sent to the court in, in Luoyang. The idea was that these men uh, made really good administrators and servants because they were not going to mess with all of the emperor's uh, consorts um hmm. who were also all over the place uh the the emperor would have dozens if not hundreds of women that he would father children with um and all of these children would be in competition for the throne um so the idea was that these eunuchs wouldn't mess with them. And because these eunuchs would not be able to have children themselves, the idea was that they would not try to, um, you know, have dynastic uh, plots of their own because they can't have any kids. In How reality, this was a, it totally backfired uh, because even these, even though these dudes were castrated, uh, they still were self-interested and still would scheme for power. The um, all of the empress dowagers would also scheme and plot for power. Uh, it was a pretty bad situation, so much so that there would be like baby boys who would become emperor, and then they would be killed in their first year of life, just so that another baby could take over. And the eunuchs, uh, the eunuchs would would plot and scheme too. So. Leaving that there, the Zhang Jue would uh, plot and scheme with one of the eunuchs. Uh, not entirely sure what the eunuch was doing, but the the correspondence between that eunuch and uh, Zhang had 
leaked, the emperor immediately had this had the eunuch captured, executed uh, by I believe it was dismemberment. Um, pretty savage means of execution. Uh, Sending a message. That, <clears throat> that's right. Tipped him. Tipped him off. Uh, well, John kind of panicked and immediately like was like, "We got to start the rebellion, boys." So, look like meat's back on the menu. <laughs> Sorry, please cut that part out. <laughs> Staying in. No. Um, yeah, so launched, you know, called up his boys and were like, now's the time. So, this is like early uh, 184. And the yellow turbans all over northern China, you know, began massacring government officials, like seizing government buildings, depending on the location, you know, they would, uh, you know, each province uh, in China at this time, they called them commanderies. Uh, The commandery administrator would either be like held for ransom, captured, executed, uh, things like that. And everything kind of blew up all at once. So in response, uh, the emperor at the time, who, who I didn't mention this before, the emperor's name was Ling. Emperor Ling mobilized three separate armies to deal with the rebellion. Only going to talk about one general because one general stood head and shoulders above the other two. And that was a guy named Hung Fu Song. Hung Fu Song was by far the most successful of all these generals. And this dude... As far as like the emperor is concerned, single-handedly put down this rebellion. And we had help. Um, and he had help from other various warlords, but Hong Fu Song was the main guy that was loyal to the emperor uh, that um, put down the rebellion. Uh, he basically in less than a year had he went straight for Zhang Jue. And while Zhang Jue was kind of on the run, under siege, you know, trying to survive, uh, he actually ended up getting sick and he passed away. Super anticlimactic for Zhang Jue, but he died, which I find wildly hilarious that a dude who was known for healing died from illness. <laughs> Uh, it's ironic. Just goes to show you this dude is probably making it up. Anyway, um, uh, yeah. So he died, and his brother. <clears throat> there was a there was a younger uh, a younger Zhang Liang. Uh, he he was kind of the second in command, and he ended up actually being more successful than Zhang Jue. So towards the end of the year, he actually started winning battles against Hong Fu Song and actually put Hong Fu on the defensive. Well, in classical, you know, Chinese uh, fashion, Hong Fu Song resorted to trickery and he kind of like feigned this defensive posture in this in this specific battle in Guangzhou County. This is still northern China. Um, 
and ended up luring them into an attack. And then Hung Fu Song like responded, counterattacked in the middle of the night and then completely obliterated uh, the Yellow Turban forces. Th- that the second Zhang brother, Zhang Liang, he died in that attack. So at least he died in battle. Uh, after that battle, so this was close to where Zhang Jue had died from illness and they had buried him. It kind of, you know, gave him this tomb. Uh, you know, it was very much common for Chinese, you know, authorities to be given a lot of pomp and circumstance when they died and their tombs were still very visible. And Hong Fu Song, like, ended up ordering his troops to dig up Zhang Jue's grave, cut his head off, and then send his head back to the imperial court where they put him on the walls uh, of the city, uh, 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 the city walls back in Luoyang. So pretty savage here. So we've got two dead uh, Jung brothers and there's one left. So um, things kind of like calmed down from there. There were several other uprisings kind of elsewhere in... um, uh, in Northern China, the, the last Zhang brother, Zhang Bao, he, uh, he only made it to January of the year 185. Nothing really special happened with him. He ended up just getting killed by Han forces again, by Hong Fu Song and another guy, um, more or less hunted him down and, and he didn't put up that much of a resistance. However, even though the three Zhang brothers, leader of this rebellion, all died within a year. The idea, and this is kind of important as we as we move on to like more existential questions here, but the idea of the yellow turbans didn't die for like another 20 years. There were continued yellow turban minor warlords that continued to fight for the cause, uh, continued to um, recruit soldiers and not recruit a small number. Like there were, uh, some, some warlords were feel, were able to field, you know, 15 years after the fact, yellow turban armies ranging in the hundreds of thousands of troops. And they caused a lot of problems, uh, elsewhere, but the main uprising, the main uprising was about 2 million, yellow turbans so there would be you know in hundreds of thousands so the main the main thing was gone but the idea remained uh why why that's interesting like why did this idea or how did the yellow turbans persist for you know they just got wiped out the three primary leaders were killed in battle yeah like how did that persist or why did it persist or i guess both yeah, I and this and this is one of our key takeaways here. the The reason why the Han fell fundamentally was because the Han were they couldn't fix they didn't fix their poor governance, and the people had had enough, and authority and power specifically transferred from the Han to other people. We can throw a spiritual label on that, you know, the mandate of heaven, but the more fundamental and pragmatic reality is the, the, the idea of the yellow turbans persisted because 
the idea that the time of the Han has ended was alive and well. And because people were so fed up with the corruption, they were so fed up with, you know, how they interpreted things like disease and the Yellow River, um, destroying their homes and villages. They desperately wanted change and they were convinced that the way they had to change things was to get rid of the Han. So the last thing here, kind of talking about the aftermath before we move into what role it contributed to the fall of the Han. In 185, uh, at the end of the rebellion, uh, three things. Large swaths of northern China had been completely devastated. You know, two million people being slaughtered uh, does something to your economy in Mm -hmm. 184. I think one uh, conservative historian estimate is that the total number of people under Han Chinese rule at this time was about 60 million. Uh, just for context, within the Roman Empire at this exact same time period was about 50, 56 million. So slightly larger, but you know, roughly the same as you know, in terms of sheer population uh, as the Roman Empire. Two million people is no small amount. Like, no, uh, that would be the equivalent. You know, rough math off the top of my head here. A large size city, a large size city, just being gone. Yeah, that would be. Let's see here, sixty to forty. Jeez, I don't know. I'm gonna have to cut this part out. <laughs> what do you the, to figure? Like the percentage of it? There'd be like 10 million people in the United States dying in a year. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the same percentage of of people uh, that does that has no, a massive like, it'd, impact. It'd be closer to 15 to 20 million. Yeah, like that's that is a ridiculously large number of you know people dying. And, you know, that that just completely devastates the local economy. You've got fields. You know, a lot of these people were peasants. So, like, you've got agriculture. You have farms. You have fields. They're just like, they're, nobody's telling them. Nobody's doing anything. Uh, you know, entire villages just disappearing uh, because all the men got killed in this battle. So, the large swaths of northern china were devastated um total casualties are unknown there's actually not that many sources and one of the main sources is, is uh from like a thousand years after the fact um but estimates are somewhere like um in the like i said in the hundreds of thousands of of people so um that's the second thing third thing the, one of the main aftermaths of the Yellow Turban Rebellion is that in order to fight the Yellow Turban Rebellion, the emperor called on several regional warlords to fight. Mm. So, I, you know, in, in kind of telling the story here, I only mentioned Hong Fu Song and, and the three armies. And they definitely played the main role. But... In a part of that, and fighting with imperial forces were like the local regional warlords who also fielded these armies 
also contributed to putting down the rebellion elsewhere. Uh, it's worth mentioning two guys, a guy named Dong Zhuo, Dong Zhuo and Yuan Shao. Both of these guys would play huge roles in the further collapse of the Han Dynasty, particularly Dong Zhuo. Uh, if you're familiar with the Romance of the Three Kingdoms story, he has a very iconic role uh, that we're actually going to go into more detail in our next episode. But Dong Zhuo was one of the main commanders of an army in uh, northern China who was who fought off uh, the the Shan Shangnu uh, tribes. Uh, and he had a battle hardened army that was called on to, you know, fight yellow turbans. Interestingly enough, he actually lost two different battles, uh, with the yellow turbans and he kind of had to like go scampering back to his capital and he kind of was just like, uh, I'm going to hang out here for a little bit. Uh, Yuan Shao, on the other hand, he was only like a colonel. At the time, he it probably wouldn't be proper to call him a warlord during the Yellow Turban Rebellion, but he he gained in popularity amongst his troops, and then he later became a warlord, and he plays a key role. We're going to talk more about him in, in the next episode, but he would later massacre all of the eunuchs in the capital uh, because he too had been fed up. Uh, and that act kind of made him a leader amongst the other warlords so that when Dong Zhuo uh, became the tyrant, he ended up taking control of the emperor and kind of moving into Luoyang and then ended up burning the city down and moving to another capital, Chang'an. Uh, Yuan Shao was kind of this leader figure to try to depose Yuan Shou or uh, Dong Zhuo. Uh, he ended up failing, but... Um, or being unsuccessful, but both of these men kind of got their start during the Yellow Turban Rebellion. And the point here for our purposes is, you know, this is the time that when, you know, kind of similar to the Roman Empire and the mercenary armies, that when the central government is not able to handle its business on itself, it has to delegate that power and authority to other people to try to help it to do its job. And those other people don't just relinquish that power easily. Further tying it into Rome, I would say, like you mentioned, not quite a warlord, you know, warlord-esque, some of it, but think about Roman generals who were promoted to emperor and a claim on the throne. Like they go and defeat a great army. You have a weak, you have a weak emperor and things are bad in Rome. Mm-hmm. declare your general an emperor and suddenly you have civil war and strife. And, you know, I think that's a great point. It's just really fascinating as I listen to you go through this, like how similar the Han dynasty was to Rome in that it was extremely powerful, but even the fall, like the Antonide plague obviously hit them pretty badly. They lost a huge population. There was rebellions and civil strife. There was corruption within the government that I think you'll get into next week more, but corruption yeah. that had begun festering throughout the emperor and created a lot of discontent amongst some of the more, we'll call them warrior class. Um, I, it's just very interesting hearing that parallel. And I think it goes back to kind of why we started this whole series 
to show that a lot of these empires fall kind of on this similar trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. I, so given credit where credit's due, there's, there's another podcast called fall of civilizations podcast. Uh, and they, they do some really well done, like well-produced uh, podcasts on various empires. Um, they're, they're one on the fall of the Han dynasty is worth listening to. I was a little frustrated because over half the podcast is not about the fall of the Han dynasty. <laughs> uh, it's about like how China, like he starts with the Qin dynasty and doesn't start talking about like the three kingdoms period and like the fall of the Han dynasty until over halfway through a almost three hour podcast. Aside from that part, he, the, I forget the gentleman's name who does this thing, but Fall of Civilizations podcast, he makes an interesting comparison to uh, Dong Zhuo and Julius Caesar. Hmm. And I, I think he, I think he's onto something because the point, the, and the point that I'd like to make here now is like, I think we can begin to build a principle in this podcast series that when a society, when a, when a, when a government encounters issues and they look to one person to save them, that fundamentally changes that society in a way that might be really helpful at the time, but you're kind of sowing the seeds for its own destruction in the future. And it's just a question of how much longer is it going to last when you ask for the dictator, both Julius Caesar and Dong Zhuo became the dictator, you know, Dong Zhuo, and both of them were assassinated in their rule. Like I said, the principle still stands that when you, when you give that power to one person, it usually doesn't go well. Well, talk about, talk about the difference between Dong Zhuo, Julius Caesar, and then Cincinnatus. Do you remember him from one of the podcast right. episodes? He relinquished the control and went back to farming. Yeah. Which is George Washington in, in an American context, right? Like mm -hmm. <clears throat> this idea that, you know, when George Washington intentionally didn't run for a third term in office when he could have, uh, you know, people wanted to make him a king and he's like, no, we're not going to do that. Um, yeah. Like the, the example of relinquishing power, it's so notice, it's so notable because it is so rare. And, um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but Cincinnatus was Cincinnatus was before Julius Caesar, right? Well, hundreds of years before, like he was in right. the early early Roman Republic. So there was a republic for another couple hundred years, yeah, because exactly. of that example, right? Exactly. How like did the republic ever come back after Caesar? Julius Caesar, no. The republic did. The republic was dead effectively when Julius Caesar really ultimately assumed power as a dictator. Um, you know, he was assassinated and, but then as soon as he was assassinated a few years later, Octavian became Augustus and right. you know, from there it was truly cemented. So it was like, it, <clears throat> it was kind of one of those things. It was like the inevitable had already started. Like you, you can't, it's like squeezing a tube of toothpaste. You can't get the toothpaste back in once you do it. Right. Right. And what was, do you recall what, this isn't stump the chump, but <clears throat> do you recall what the immediate context was to like that gave Caesar the power, like before he crossed the Rubicon, before the civil war and Pompeii and all that stuff, like what, what conflict made Caesar Caesar? It was, it was the, the Gaul, the Gallic campaigns. Well, so 
boy, really complicated question. Yes, there's the there's the Gallic campaigns that was designed for Julius Caesar to set himself apart and win fame because Rome still favored military success and all of that. He wanted to go back with his own campaign and it made him wildly unpopular with the Senate and the, you know, the uh, patricians and the other aristocrats within Rome because he became so popular with the people and they feared that he would become a dictator for life as they would call it at that point. And Mm -hmm. eventually he did. And he, you know, then without getting into a whole nother podcast series on it. But, you know, that's when he went to the the first triumvirate broke up between um, Crassus, Pompey, and and Julius Caesar. And he ended up going to war with uh, with Pompey. And there's the crossing of the Rubicon and him basically taking over Rome. Right. Not basically. So in the same way, Dong Zhuo, you know, his his Gallic campaigns was fighting with the Xianu, uh in the in the northern part of china uh and then when there was you know his civil war was the yellow turban rebellion like his you know claim to fame and his you know it was also less about facts and more about the narrative right like it was he wasn't that successful right like he wasn't that successful on the battlefield he actually got beat twice uh, but he was able to twist this narrative that he ended up being the protector of the emperor. And w- later when Emperor Liang died and there was all this court fighting that left, I think his like, like 12 year old son in charge. Dong Zhuo ended up, you know, showing up in Liang and being like, I'm the protector of the emperor now. Uh, and we'll, and we'll, we'll get, we'll talk more about that in the next episode. But I think the principle here is that the Yellow Turban Rebellion was a diagnosis of the Han, and that diagnosis was you are failing in your rule and the people want to change. Instead of changing their corrupt practices, exploiting the people with like super high taxes, uh, we didn't even talk about it, but there was basically this like slave labor system at the time where people who had done nothing wrong were required to serve certain amounts of time. That could be 30 days. It could be a year uh, where it's just like, Oh, you're a citizen of this County. You have to do your service. Um, That that was the equivalent to temporary slave labor. Um, And the, and the peasants didn't like it and they thought their time was being wasted and all the government officials were taking money off the top anyway. Um. And that was one of the reasons why people were tired of the Han and add on to that, the Yellow River and the disease and all the natural disasters, the famines, um, people, people were ready for a change and the Han did nothing. They literally didn't change a single practice. It was still the eunuchs. It was still the, the dowagers fighting in, in the court. And the whole time, uh, I, didn't, I didn't really go over this earlier, but Emperor Ling was notoriously a terrible ruler. He he would like play these games where apparently he was like a big fan of role play. <laughs> and he would like have these like, he would like act out these different scenarios with all his girls in court. And they would like, like dress up to pretend to be robbers. And he would like pretend to be a merchant. And it's just like, oh, no. I'm being robbed. Like, then it would like go in these like weird orgies. It was just like a extremely messed up uh, 
time in in the court and when uh you know the yellow turbans sprang up it was he was just kind of like oh i'm gonna dispatch these other generals to go fix it whereas in the past other emperors would maybe would have gone out and fought themselves he didn't he didn't do that it's kind of funny before you got into the whole orgy part of that i was gonna say oh interesting another very inept and kind of mildly corrupt leader uh, used to do that same thing. Uh, Peter the third, mm. Catherine the Great's husband, he mm. um, he would, you know, I thought you were going with the whole role play thing, like, oh, he would do like cops and robbers, but you know, kind of pretend like he was this man child. But um, <laughs> Peter the yeah. third would actually do like toy soldiers, but they would have like actual soldiers, like pretend to be toys, and he would like move them around as like chess pieces and things like that. Nice, kind of a, a common. A, a commonality of uh, inept rulers, if you will. Yeah. I'm sure he had his own weird uh, fetishes too, sort of like. Uh... Yeah, but it's almost like, like, and I and I think that this is going to be a theme in in you know the series. But like, when the people have poor leadership, the people suffer, and when the and when the leadership is too concerned with child's play. Uh, or sexual deviancy, um, you know, the nation suffers. A hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's a symptom. He's playing games in the bedroom and the, in the, the Royal court. And meanwhile, his people are suffering because he can't, he's more concerned with trivialities versus, you know, tax problems, agrarian issues, poor harvest disease, uh, these <laughs> rebels that are running wild throughout his country. So yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. it's symbolic of his his reign, if you will. Right, right. So so one of the one of the main ideas I want to talk about before we move into more like application, we see here in what the Yellow Turban Rebellion did for the Han was it presented an alternate system. The system consisted of a political structure, the the Zhang brothers, and it consisted of an alternate worldview or maybe an alternate religious system with their Taoist uh, teachings. The principle here is that when within this society, alternate systems present themselves and entrench themselves that is an indicator that your current system is failing. Uh, I think that's what, you know, going back to your earlier question, Colin, about, uh, you know, why did the Yellow Turban Rebellion persist? And it's like the alternate system existed. And Mm. it doesn't matter how many of the people that you kill, there's an alternate system. When, you know, there there's one thing when there is conflict within a society, but the two parties, the you know, the at least two parties of the conflict, they they can still be operating within the same system. So I'm thinking of the historical rivalry and conflict between Republicans and Democrats, right? Like they're still operating within the current constitutional system that we have. It's when the alternative system presents itself and you no longer have two parties operating within the same system. You have one of the parties that 
is operating in a completely different system, a completely different worldview, that's when I think, you know, leaders should look at themselves and go, oh, shoot, like this is much worse than we thought because all it takes is for the people to adhere to the competitive system. That is an irreconcilable divide between these two factions within a society. And I think that's an indicator that a civilization may be on the on the brink of collapse when you have these competitive systems. So kind of moving moving here into application, talking about destabilizing factors. You know, I mentioned we have these two competitive systems and uh and how that has you know, a, a destabilizing effect. One thing, you know, thinking about the Yellow Turban Rebellion, that destabilization was, got out of control. The Han could no longer manage the instability. The court was too weak. The emperor was too unconcerned. There were too many other actors who were interested and invested on destabilization. Destabilization was in their best interest. And the instability got out of control. I think this is important for us to note today that, that like... You know, when I think about January 6th, at a minimum, January 6th was on some level a destabilizing event. Never before have we had a large mass of people break into the U.S. Capitol building. Regardless of what your opinion is on whether it was justified or not, this, the objective observation is that people broke into the U.S. Capitol building. Like, that is destabilizing at a minimum whether or not you think the destabilization was good it was destabilizing right i think we're fortunate in that our political system though flawed is still strong enough to have been able to take that instability and manage it and get it back under control right there's still issues right like there's still um you know, there's there's a whole group of Americans that think uh, and believe that what occurred on January 6th was a good thing, like fundamentally, like that it was that it supposed that it was good that it occurred. Then there's a whole nother category of Americans that, um, you know, believe that it was an insurrection and that it was, you know, all these all these different things that we should put them all in jail, like blah, 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 like the the factors are still there and i think it shows us that our political system is still strong enough to be able to manage that instability yellow turban rebellion and the han things got out of control uh it was you know the han like i said still lasted for another 25 years but the 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 avalanche had begun and there was no going back so kind of thinking about the destabilizing factors and what role that plays, I think there's there's a lot of application there for, you know, similar similar things here in, in the United States and the West. Never discount the loss of the mandate of heaven. 
it's embedded in their psyche. Once they perceive that it's gone, it's almost impossible to get back. It seems. Yeah. Um, you know, legitimacy, uh, man, Colin, it's like you read my notes. That was my next point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, this is a good time to bring up legitimacy. So thanks Colin for doing that. Um, I, I believe it. this is, you know, this is not, you'll probably find better definitions of political legitimacy out there, but I think it's a measure of the belief and confidence that people have in their government. Right. Um, even though the Han dynasty was successful in putting down the rebellion, they were losing their legitimacy. The legitimacy was going down next to nothing. It only had 25 years left of legitimacy in the minds of the people. Um, Legitimacy is a thing. And I think it's a thing that we here in the United States would be wise to not take for granted. You know, we we were all kind of raised in this educational system that, um, you know, millennials and Gen X and boomers, we all kind of took the, uh, the goodness of our current political system for granted. Like it was, that's what it was. Whereas I think we're seeing now in younger generations like Gen Z, we're seeing like a lot of questioning on the fundamental assumptions of our government system and that legitimacy is being eroded. How much longer that can last, I don't know. But, you know, if we if we say that legitimacy is a measure of the belief and confidence that the people have in their government, uh, you know, if we say things like the U.S. Constitution is flawed because the founders, it's an inherently systematically racist uh, thing, right? Therefore, it needs to be done away with. That is an indicator uh, that there are suggestions that we need to have a competitive and alternative system, right? The current system isn't working. We need a different system. That creates, that's how civilizations collapse. Mm. Not, not, to, not to go too, too crazy on the you know, systematic racism part. Because um, there's obviously a lot example. of it's just other factors. Button. It's a hot button, but like it's it's a thing. Like it's a it is a factor. Like it's well, it right. is. We would be unwise to just disregard and say like, ah, that's the minority of people. Like it may very well be the minority of people, but you know the Zhang brothers started out being the minority of people. Even the Yellow Turban Rebellion was the minority of people. Uh, And like I said, like these destabilizing factors can get out of control really fast. So one, one last and final point here, uh, and that is on the topic of power. Uh, And this is kind of why, what I took away from studying like Dong Zhuo, Yuan Shao, all of the other regional warlords, um, the decentralization of power, like the distribution of power, it can have a stabilizing effect, but in other situations and circumstances, it can have a destabilizing effect. And again, I think the key difference between those two things are 
do those different foundations of power or put another way, those power brokers, are they operating within the same system or they, are they bringing about a different system? And go ahead. I was going to say, I think your power of power, legitimacy and legitimacy grants power authority. So Mm. if you are a if you have legitimacy and you are in power, you have the authority to exercise that power over a group of people. But if you lose the legitimacy, suddenly that authority begins to be stripped from you and you're no longer able to exercise power justly in the eyes of those people. So then that's when you start to get rebellions. That's when you start, and it becomes like a cycle. So it's sort of like you lose a little bit of legitimacy. So you lose some of that authority, the ability to exercise that power over some sort of cause or rebellion. And then that rebellion grows and grows and grows and all these other things happen and all these poor decisions start happening. Suddenly you've lost all of your authority and legitimacy um, to exercise any power. And now you can't even exercise power whatsoever. So I think they all kind of go hand in hand. And I think that's what happened with the Han. I think they, it it happened in Rome. It's happening in the Han dynasty as we go through this yellow turban uh, rebellion. Right. I, so, you know, I love to push the envelope here on the loins of history, Colin. Do it. <laughs> Do it. Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the perfect example of someone who is a person of immense power, right? There are people who are radical Donald Trump followers, right? Uh, in a way that even though Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden, literally nobody gets juiced up about Joe Biden (laughs) the way that a lot of people get juiced up about Donald Trump. Currently, Donald Trump is operating in the same system as everybody else. However, his whole brand is that he is on the fringes of that system that he seeks to change the system, but he's not yet gotten to the point where he is proposing an alternative system. He's been flirting with these ideas, you know, and I would consider the whole stolen election claims as dangerously flirting with proposing an alternative system, right? When we can no longer trust the mechanism that puts officials in office, right? The voting system. Uh, and I mean that in like the, the comp- most comprehensive way, like the, the machinery, the ballot counting, the local, like super local county administ- city administrators that count the ballots, et cetera, all the way up to the news stations that report all of these different things. Like he has poured gasoline on the fire of, you know, proposing an alternative system. Frankly, I think the only reason why it's not working is because Donald Trump's alternative system is solely and completely focused on himself. He's not he's not a visionary in that, you know, he's actually less visionary than maybe Zhang Jue and the and the Zhang brothers were because he's not proposing a comprehensive system. He's just trying to present himself uh as the alternative person 
as a matter of fact, the closest thing that he's come to doing on alternative system is Truth Social, and hey, you know we're on Truth I haven't. Social too. <laughs> Are we? Please tell me we're not on Truth oh, Social. We're on Truth Social. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Hey, we gotta get some boomers on it. We gotta get boomers on the podcast too. Oh man. Ugh. <laughs> Why are we on Truth Social? Gotta get the word out, man. Uh, I gotta get the word out, I guess. Out too. I retrue them. All right. You retrue them? Is that what is that what you call it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't log in very often. <laughs> okay. Well, either way, like I would you know, I can't, you can't say that truth social is a failure because there's, there's people on the system, but at the same time, like it's not very compelling, uh, as an alternative social media website or thing. <laughs> Nothing has really, um, very rarely are people able to create an alternative social media site. It almost has to grow, uh, over time and have non, it has to go from the grassroots up because if you notice, there's been more than one social media alternative proposed. I think Mammoth oh, yeah. was for a little while. Once Elon bought, it was kind of, the, it was the leftist equivalent of truth social like Mammoth and it has right. utterly disappeared. I think threads was thrown out there too. And within like mm. two days, just. <clears throat> was that a have, meta? We, was that meta's version of Twitter? It was, and it was a complete copy. Yeah. And I think there was almost a lawsuit. I think there might still be a lawsuit going because they mm. basically copied X. Anyway, just to point that out there, it's funny. There's lots of alternatives out there. None have really had the success of the mainline X. Yeah. Or TikTok. I, the reason why I bring up Donald Trump, because if I'm a bet man, there's probably quite a few of our listeners that like Donald Trump. The, the takeaway that I hope we all have about Donald Trump in particular uh, is is just like the reality here that whether you love him or whether you hate him, he is a significant power source, right? Like he wields significant political power still. Um, and if he chooses to wield that political power in a way that presents an alternative system that can be extremely destabilizing in a way that I'm not sure those same people who, you know, would say that they're fans of Donald Trump. I'm not sure that those people would say that they're in favor of him doing that. If that makes any sense. I, I just want to bring awareness to the point that we're, that we are actually really close to some pretty scary stuff. And I'm not trying to make a comment on the likelihood of Donald Trump, you know, going full bore, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm not trying to make a comment on that. I certainly can't predict the future and blah, blah, blah. I also don't, I, I guess it's probably worth, worth me saying, I absolutely don't adhere to like when he was in office, there were all these comparisons to Hitler and the Nazis. I think all of that was completely overblown. Um, but being honest, like a lot of the stolen election claims were very disturbing to me because that was, you know, one of the one of the main things where it's like, ooh, that's not good. Like that's not good for society. Like that's not good for stability. That's not good for, you know, healing divisions and wounds. Like that's pouring gasoline on the fire. Uh 
in addition to just, you know, you know, thinking about like Sydney Powell going up there, like, you know, in the, in the, my pillow guy, like all of those people have been completely debunked. Um, maps like virtually none of the things that they were saying were true. Uh, and, and have not held up in court. So anyway, the, that is an example of when you have competitive power brokers, they can have destabilizing effects on society. We saw this with the yellow turbans. We saw this with Dong Zhuo. I think we're going to continue to see this over and over again um, in our in our Fall Civilizations series. Well, as we said, we do like to correct political uh, illiteracy as well. So I do. That was a that was a good uh, good push and way to connect it to. Uh, current events jay very yeah, good try. wrapping it up we try it was it was you know we try we try uh hey and if you're listening all the way to the end of the podcast thank you give us a shout out i want to know who's listening and please tell me do you agree or not if you disagree i definitely want to know all the good all stuff about comes the out at the very end that's where all the controversial stuff starts getting leaked out which but is purely anyway, incidental, by the way. <laughs> it's just where we start. It's where we start free flowing right there. But no, mm-hmm. it, this, Jay, this is very informative. Great summary of of the Yellow Turban Rebellion. I think we're learning a lot of the the fall of the Han Dynasty. And we got one more episode left before we wrap everything up on the Han Dynasty and move on to our next civilization. If you're on social media, give Jay and I a follow. We're on Loins of History on on X on Instagram. Um, apparently, we're on Truth Social too, though we're not very active on it. Uh, it's primarily Twitter I'm not active at all on Truth Social. <laughs> it's primarily uh, it's primarily uh, Instagram and, and X. Though I might uh, dabble in Mammoth or Threads. We'll see. Um, but yeah, give us a shout out as well. You can contact us via Gmail or uh, direct message us via. Social media, we love having listen, uh, listeners reach out to us and give us your feedback. We've had a few listeners do that before in the past, and we do appreciate it. If you give us a five-star rating and a comment, we'll give you a shout-out. Or if you have some feedback and you're listening all the way to the end, we do appreciate it as well. So uh, go ahead and uh, give us that five-star review. It gives it helps the algorithm. And then write a little review for us. We do appreciate constructive criticism, and we'll give you a shout-out at the end of the episode as well. Or maybe the beginning now, so we make sure we get uh, everybody to hear it. So with that, thank you, and thank you for listening to The Loins of History.